The scripture reading today is from Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 and 12 through 15. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the land of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Horoish Hagoyim. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly 20 years. At that time, Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kaishan with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 warriors went up behind him and Deborah went up with him. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the troops who were with him, from Haroish Hagoam to the Wadi Kaishan. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord is indeed going out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him. And the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. God, meet us here, we pray, um, in this incredible setting that we're in this morning, outside in this beautiful city, um, but listening to these pretty wild ancient stories. So help us to see how they apply to our lives, um, even in a really fascinating but um, just off the charts sort of stories this morning. Show us who we are, show us who you are, and help us to find ourselves in the story that you're writing in the world and in human, human life, we pray. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, morning again, City Church. You know, we plan out sermon preaching calendars like months, months in advance. Somehow, way before this stuff was planned, I've scored both outdoor services, first outdoor services ever, City Church history, first outdoor anything I've ever preached at. Um, so that's a lot of fun. I don't know. Sometimes I begin to wonder if, if uh, God's trying to train me 
to be like an outdoor revival preacher or something like that. It's not something I ever imagined, but uh, who knows? We can see. Um, one thing I think is cool, especially on the live stream, I noticed, is that we're right in front of this hair and heavy metal truck. And that is what you see if you're on the live stream. Live stream. So welcome to all of, all of those uh, at home. It's sort of like we're at a festival or something. It's awesome. Um, but we are continuing in this series we've been in all fall uh, called The 10%. And it's really trying to pay attention to and celebrate the often overlooked stories of women of the Old Testament, stories that are sometimes downplayed or just sort of uh, swept up in the majority of the Old Testament stories that tend to be about men, and to look at these incredible women because they are often the ones who God moves through in the most powerful ways. And, and oftentimes, like this one today, when things are most bleak, a woman like Deborah arises. And this was a moment like that. It was a dark time, and it starts off in our passage talking about this. This is the fledgling nation of Israel. They are just a bunch of tribes, really, and they're lost. They've forsaken God, as the story begins. They're being harassed by this king of Canaan and this general, this other main figure in the story, this general named Sisera, who has 900 iron chariots. And we'll talk a bit about that, what that means. But then something remarkable happens, and something that's honestly still a bit of a mystery. And I spent a lot of my time the last week sort of marveling at this mystery because Israel finds itself with a new judge and a prophet, and it's a woman named Deborah, and she's the only female judge. She's the only female judge that ever happened. She's the only female judge recorded in the Bible, and she turns out to be the most successful and God-honoring judge in the Bible. She ushers in 40 years, 40 years of peace and flourishing for the people of Israel. But she's a complete mystery. I mean, in the text, we're told almost nothing about her, almost nothing about where she came from. The text says she's the wife of, let me get this right, the wife of Lipidoeth. The notes are jumping around. Lipidoeth. Okay, but he's not described at all. And you normally expect scholars, when they're looking at this, are like, you would expect him to be described at least. Like, where did he come from? There's nothing there. Scholars also point out that most prophets weren't married. Few were here and there, but usually a prophet is not married in the Old Testament. And then you dig in, well, one more thing. Lepidoeth would be a very unusual personal name, okay? So there's a lot of, like, mystery, like, what's really going on here? You dig in one layer deeper, and it just turns out that in Hebrew, wife of Lepidoeth can just as easily be translated woman of fire, all right? Which is really cool. Um, which would be something like Deborah, prophetess, woman of fire, all right? That's awesome. Um, it's not something we can nail down with certainty, but the original readers and hearers of the story would have held all those possibilities in their minds. It's pretty cool. All right, what we do know, she's a mystery though, what we do know is that there's a song of Deborah that actually comes up next. And I'm sorry, I'm spending just a little bit of time really digging into what's going on in the Bible here, but in the next chapter, the song of Deborah, it tells of this woman, Deborah, of her victory, of how God blessed her and how God blessed people of Israel. Now, that song, even though it comes next, is actually hundreds of years older, hundreds of years older than the story we're reading today. It's something that the Israelites had been singing and passing along generation to generation through their history. And then one day, the scribes and priests write this book of Judges, and they write this backstory, or they piece together this backstory about the song. All right, so all we know, we just, we're just getting a glimpse into to this amazing 
mysterious woman is, but all we know is that something, something miraculous, something shocking and surprising had happened in Israel's distant past, and they had been singing about it for hundreds of years. And then we're given this story. But this story, because it challenges the culture of the day it was written, because it challenges a lot about the culture we're in now and the church aged in between, all of that, it has caused a lot of consternation in theological circles, okay, over the years. I first um, encountered it, I was, I was 17 years old. I was 17, just a wee lad, just a budding teenager of a theologian, and I went to spend some time at this uh, really conservative Christian ministry outside Chicago. Um, this was a place where they really did not appreciate, I would say, the gifts of women in leadership. They really didn't make much of allowance for women to do much of anything, um, in leadership at least. And I had a problem with it because it wasn't exactly my church experience growing up. So I went to one of the leaders there, a guy much older than me, and just said, look, I don't quite get this. Why do we do things this way? Um, and we started talking about the Bible. And I brought up this story, this very story of Deborah, just like, isn't this kind of a slam dunk for women in leadership? Um, I mean, Deborah's a prophetess, a uh, leader, a judge. She's commanding the military officer what to do. And you won't let her preach. I'll never forget it. I re this is like crystal clear in my memory. This guy looks at me with this like form of compassion. <laughs> Just kind of like, Jonathan, yeah, Jonathan, look. In that era of the judges in the Bible, you see what was going on was the men. The men had all failed. The men were not following God. So that's the only reason God turned to Deborah and raised her up. The lesson here, Jonathan, is nothing really to do with Deborah. It's that we need strong, godly male leadership. Okay, so I'm 17. He's much older than I, but my brain is like caving in. I feel like I'm going to have an aneurysm trying to track his logic and also this way where the whole story of Deborah is just erased. It's just like so easily erased. But it didn't start there when I was 17. It goes back hundreds of years. Great theologians of the past, major people like Martin Luther, the great reformer, had this really novel idea. It wasn't novel to him. It's just crazy to me. Um, he relied on many people before him to come up with this. That Deborah must have only been a, a private prophet, like could only prophesy in private. She can't be a public leader. And I don't even know what that means. <laughs> like, it, does she only prophesy about, like, domestic household matters? Does she prophesy, would she whisper? The bottom line is, it's, it's almost as if Martin Luther and others didn't even read this story or the song that follows. There's nothing private about Deborah. The story, the actual text, the Bible says she's sitting on a hill under this palm tree. All the people of Israel are coming to her to have her judge the matters before. She's the one commanding Barak, the general, about what to do, or the, the military leader, about what to do in battle. He's afraid to go into battle without her. Okay, so there is nothing, nothing private about her. But this is what we humans do when we are confronted with a truth that contradicts the ideological commitments we've made. We just edit reality, even in some shocking ways. And not to pick on any one group, we all do that. 
We all do it. I read a study, and we can do it with some amazing, fascinating ways to like, like we can do it in math, which seems impossible because math is so objective. But I read a study this, this last week, or an article about a study in Psychology Today, and it said that, look, when people, people are doing mathematical computations, and the result of the computation disagrees with a core commitment of theirs, the errors, their error rate goes up 25 to 40%, okay? Now, this was a, this was a study using, and again, I'm not picking on anybody here, but using a group who were very anti-vaccination, but were perfectly, perfectly capable mathematicians to run calculations on vaccine effectiveness, and whenever the results contradicted their core position, their error rate goes up 25 to 40%. Okay, so that is the ability we have, the remarkable ability as humans to just kind of make changes to the reality we perceive. And it's not any one group. I'm not picking on anybody. We all do it. We all do it in different ways. But, but if your core position, your security bubble, your, your identity bubble is really based around holding on to authority or holding on to power, you're going to do it in particular ways particular ways to, uh, to maintain that, even to erase parts of the Bible that you say you love. So it's something for us all to be aware of. But what I love, what I so love about the Bible, and I mean this, this is the whole point to what I'm trying to get at here, is it will not, the Bible will not confirm our biases for very long if we read it, if we embrace it, if we take all of it. Now, it's no small miracle that this story of Deborah even survived the ages because it's so countercultural. And it's challenging to the culture that it was written in. It's challenging to us in many ways. It even challenges other parts of the Bible that take a more patriarchal position. But this is what makes the Bible so fascinating to me. I mean, this is kind of why I'm still in the game of Christianity. It's because the Bible is not some kind of perfect systematic theology it doesn't work that way. The Bible is this amazing collection of stories. There's a collection of stories that are in conversation with each other. Rene Girard has this saying that I quote a lot whenever I get to something like this, which is that the Bible should be looked at as a text in travail. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but a text in travail, a text in labor, trying to give birth to a new story to a new way of seeing God, to a new way of understanding our lives and understanding the world. And it, and it zigs and it zags as it's, as it's kind of making its way, but that's the journey we're supposed to be on with it. And if we let it talk to us through our life, we will be challenged for a lifetime. It never stops challenging me. And it gives us Deborah, this mysterious wife of Lapidoth or woman of fire who saves Israel in an age where that kind of thing shouldn't have really been happening, she saves Israel out of oppression. And the crux of the story today is this conversation between Deborah and the general or the military leader, Barak, where she says to Barak, look, God, and she actually speaks with the authority of God, saying, God commands you, get 10,000 soldiers and go down and God will bring out Sisera and the 900 chariots and deliver Sisera into your hand. But then there's this fascinating response because this supposedly powerful military guy, Barak, says, look, in verse 8, if you will go with me, I will do it. But if you don't, I won't. Deborah says, that's fine, but just so you know, Barak, 
if I go with you, you will not receive the glory for this victory. The glory will go to a woman, which definitely in the age was kind of like, a, you need to be ready for the shame, because it would have been a shameful thing to give away victory like that for a male general to do that. And scholars wrestle with what's really going on here in a surprising number, like a really surprising number. Even some scholars I admire actually think Barak's doing something wrong here. Like they would say to him, look, just show more faith and courage and go it alone. You know, be a man, have some faith, take that glory for yourself. Deborah's warning you, you need to take the glory for yourself. But again, this is a moment where they're not reading the Bible. They're just not because Barak is only praised in scripture. In the next chapter where there's the song about what happens here, Barak is praised. Even the Apostle Paul praises Barak for his faith. So something else is going on, and it's a little hard to understand, but there's this really cool, this is where it's going to get a little weird for a minute, this really cool clue in this old translation of the Hebrew Scriptures called the Septuagint. It was, it's pre-Jesus, and it's a Greek translation of the Jewish Scriptures. When you read this exact same dialogue in the Septuagint, in verse 8, instead of Barak saying, if you go with me, I will go, there's one addition. He says, Deborah, if you go with me to reveal the time of the angel's advance, I will go. If you go with me to reveal the time of the angel's advance, I will go. By the way, there's a puppet show going on back there, so they're having fun, which is awesome. Um, to reveal the time of the angel's advance. So this is not an ordinary battle, the way we think of military stuff today. All right, there's 900 chariots. That sounds quaint to us. We had uh, blue angels flying over our heads, scaring me half to death last weekend. Um, 900 chariots doesn't sound like much, but 900 air iron chariots in the day would be sure defeat for Deborah and Barak. They, can't, they cannot overcome that. But additionally, in the ancient mind, when, when soldiers are going out to battle, the common belief, the universal belief, was that the gods were also going out to battle against each other. So whatever is happening here in the, on the ground level with the soldiers is also happening in the heavenlies with one nation's gods against another nation's gods. If you're victorious on the battleground, on the battlefield, it's because your gods were also victorious. Barak, that's his mindset. And he knows that Deborah is the prophet. Deborah is the one who can hear from God. Deborah is the one who can tell him when God is on the move, or as he puts it, when the angel of the Lord is on the move. And he somehow, also kind of miraculously, has the self-awareness to transcend his own ego, to maybe transcend the cultural expectation of the day, and to ask, even to insist, that Deborah go with him. He knew he needed her presence. He knew he needed her prophecy, her leadership, to make it through what was going to happen next. And that's exactly what happens, because in verse 14, Deborah's the one who tells Barak, Now's the time. The Lord is on the move. She gives the announcement. She does exactly what he's asked her to do, the gift that only she has. I was thinking a lot about Deborah um, the last week, obviously, and then um, kept thinking about the one person in my life, the one experience in my life that feels a little bit similar per, on a personal level to, to what we're hearing about Deborah. And it's had to do with my grandmother. Her name is Alice, and she, um, she died two years ago, almost exactly two years ago. It's also part of why I'm thinking about her this, this weekend. But she's the closest thing to a Deborah in my life. And there's this moment 12 years ago when um, Kristen and I 
we're literally like five minutes from getting in the car to drive out to San Francisco from Florida, cross country, for a one-year internship at this place called City Church. You might have heard of it. Um, and Kristen's seven months pregnant with Noah, that big guy sitting over there. Seven months pregnant. We're going out across the country to this city, to this unknown thing, maybe be there for a year. We don't even know. Um, lots of unknowns. And right before we're going to leave, my grandmother, who we'd already said goodbye to, um, I found out she's coming over because she wants to pray over us. Um, this isn't to say goodbye. We've already done that. She is here to pray over us. And she launches into a prayer unlike anything I've ever encountered. Now, you need to understand, um, she and I don't agree, didn't agree on a whole lot theologically. I mean, none of the most important things we did, but not a lot of things theologically, politically. She came from a very charismatic, um, Pentecostal kind of spiritual background, which I wasn't always comfortable with. But she could pray like nobody I've ever known. And she prays over Kristen and I. And this is not some polite, quaint, peaceful prayer. She is calling down angels <laughs> to go with us. She's invoking ancient promises of God for our benefit. She's praying for the future life of this baby that's in Kristen's belly. All of these things. And I know it blew both of us away, Kristen and I. And I know we still talk about it. It still feels like it just happened, like yesterday. Like the power and the vibrations from that prayer are still here. Like I feel them. And they've gone with us all this time. And I wish... I mean, there's a lot about me that I wish I could be like her. I wish I had those gifts, maybe the faith she has or the gift for prayer that she had, but I don't. Not yet, at least. I don't. Those were her gifts. It was her authority. But it went with us all this time. It's been with us all this time. And in our story, something very powerful but kind of similar is happening where Barack knows it is Deborah's authority that he needs, and he's willing to submit everything to her leadership. But even more simply, and this is what I'm going to leave us with today, to make, because I know this story is kind of way out there, like gods and victories and battles and all this stuff, but I want to bring it way close to home, because there's something very simple at the core of this story as well. Barack was not afraid to ask for help. And I know that like really simplifies it. That something at the core of the story has to do with just being willing to ask for help. The story starts off in verse 3 with Israel crying out to God, asking for God's help. Then the crux, the kind of hinge of the story is Barak, this military leader, asking, insisting for Deborah's help. And that's such a hard thing for many of us to do. Just to ask for help. I am horrible. I am so bad at asking for help. You can ask Kristen. I mean, she will send me to the store to find a couple items, couple vegetable spice type thing. I will walk around each aisle of the store like 20 times just to not ask for any help. And when I can't, and I'm bad at looking for things to begin with, all right? And when I can't find the items she's sent me to get, um, I will start creating radical stories in my mind. Like, I'll just edit reality. Like, I will just come up with some idea that these things must no longer exist. Like, they just don't exist in reality anymore. They're not here in the store. I can't find them. This item, you know, is caught up in the supply chain problems. It's not here. Or this particular mushroom 
uh, must have gone extinct since last time I went to the store. You know, global warming, it's so bad. Look what's happening, the mushrooms are gone. Um, all right, that's how bad it is. But the truth is, the honest truth is, any real breakthrough I've had in my life, any real breakthrough I've had in my life has only happened when I've been willing to go to somebody else and ask for help. Been willing to go and ask for some kind of generosity. The author or poet David White says that every transformation has at its heart the need to ask for the right kind of generosity. Every transformation has at its heart the need to ask for the right kind of generosity. And so with all of the spectacular things about the story that we we're covering today, at its heart is just this very simple lesson. The Israelites cried out to God for help. God gave them Deborah. And then Barak, the military leader, has the clarity of heart to trust Deborah's gifts, to trust her leadership, and to insist on her help. And it wasn't macho. In one sense, he loses the glory of the victory. But their story, the story of Deborah and Barak, and I'm just going to note, because you might know this story, there's also another woman who shows up after this passage named J.L., who actually is the one who gets the real victory for overcoming Sisera. You need to read that on your own because it is some heavy Old Testament stuff. A um, little too much for Sunday morning. Um, they three together usher in this era of peace. And they were sung about for hundreds of years, which is the only reason we're talking about them today. So just one very simple question to take into this week ahead. Where are you facing an obstacle? And it's time to ask another person for help. Where are you up against something in your life? And it's time to stop going it alone. Every transformation has at its heart the need to ask for the right kind of generosity. Where might God be ready and waiting to show you through another person that kind of generosity that you need right now? Let's pray. God, in this week ahead, may Deborah's story come to life in our own lives. May her story come to life in our own eyes, in our own lives. Help us to recognize your voice in unexpected places and your authority in unexpected voices. And give us the wisdom, wisdom to know where we need to ask for help, to seek generosity of others, to go into the next stage of our own journeys. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.